0: Research that changes lives. Four simple words inspiring researchers at the University of Leeds to reshape the world. I am Professor Simone Boutenlay. Since arriving at the university in 2020 as Vice-Chancellor, I've been amazed by the passion, creativity, and ingenuity of the research community to make a difference.
1: Having the opportunity to exercise choice is really you know, key to palliative care and it, that individualised care that supports the person in the last few months of life. We need to learn from the mistakes that we've made
0: and we need to learn from the instances where prevention of atrocities work.
1: I think the COVID-19 pandemic actually forced us to become a little bit more digitally literate, although I do think we still have some room to kind of continue growing.
0: One of my priorities has been to learn more about the sheer range of research carried out by early career researchers at Leeds. They are the new generation of world changers, people working tirelessly with communities and academics around the world on finding solutions to seemingly intractable problems. Over the course of this podcast series, I will be in conversation with those researchers Join me as our World Changers describe new discoveries and approaches that will make the world a better and more equitable place to live. It's about research that changes lives. Welcome to this first edition of the World Changers podcast from the University of Leeds. I am Professor Simone Buitendijk and I am in conversation with Dr. Lucy Ziegler to hear about her research into palliative care. She has played a key role in establishing what could be the world's first university teaching hospice at St. Gemma's in Leeds. And like many of us, she has experienced the impact of terminal illness in her own family. Lucy, thank you for being with us. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Let me start with a question, maybe to set the scene and, and get our listeners focused on what we're going to be talking about. Maybe you can explain to me what palliative care is, and then maybe also how well you think we do palliative care in the UK.
1: Yeah,
0: of course. So, palliative care is an area
1: of healthcare which is focused on improving quality of life and maximizing quality of life and managing symptoms rather than prolonging life or treating disease. So it's very much about not extending life, but making sure people live as well as possible for as long as possible when they've got life limiting conditions. And in terms of how well we do it in the UK, I think we do it absolutely brilliantly, Uh, Specialist palliative care services in the UK are among the best in the world. The problem is that it isn't available for everyone. And
0: there's huge inequities in terms of access to it. And how do you think we can change that? Can you say a little bit more about the inequities? Does it mean that fraction of people who need it can get it or it's only certain groups who have more access than others?
1: Yeah. So for example, cancer patients, patients with, with advanced cancer are most likely to receive palliative care, but other groups of patients that have perhaps longer term conditions or multimorbidities. older patients, particularly male patients, are all less likely to receive access to palliative care. And then there are certain groups within society, for example, yeah. people who are homeless, very rarely have had access to palliative care in the past. And these are all parts of the research that we're doing to try and improve and address these, these
0: inequalities in access. So it's really important. And you're a psychologist by background, what drew you to uh, the study of palliative care?
1: So I was working in psycho-oncology, which is supporting patients with cancer to cope with their disease and their prognosis. I was really enjoying that. I was working in a cancer hospital in Leeds in a research team, a very well-established research team, and we were doing some really impactful research. But I think what led me to change direction was my own mum was diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer, a type of cancer that can't be cured. And I think visiting her in hospital and seeing how she and the patients around her in the hospital were being treated quite aggressively, despite approaching the end of their lives and not having the option to consider palliative care. For example, my mum received chemotherapy literally days before she died. She died in hospital and palliative care was never really discussed. And she was on a treatment pathway right until the end of her life. Although really there was actually no benefit in terms of controlling the disease or extending a life from that treatment. So that started to get me thinking really about how palliative care could be integrated alongside oncology care for those patients that weren't going to be cured and actually 50% of patients diagnosed with cancer die of the disease. So these aren't the minority, it's half of them and could palliative care be integrated and patients sort of have a double track of care where they could transfer onto care at the point at which treatment became futile or the side effects from the treatment became intolerable or or detrimental to quality of life.
0: Yeah. Do you have any idea of why that happened? And I'm sure that you can tell me that it's still happening, that people get treated up until the end of life with something that may not be helpful, not even in prolonging their life. What do you think is behind that? Why do these situations occur?
1: I think when a patient's diagnosed with cancer, at that point, the patient, their family and the oncologist are usually united in, in, in the aim, in a goal of, of trying to sustain life for as long as possible. And that almost always leads to some anti-cancer treatment, whether that be surgery, chemotherapy or radiotherapy. And then the point at which you step off that treatment pathway It's very difficult to decide when to stop because prognosis, making a prognosis is quite difficult and it's becoming increasingly difficult as the number of treatment options expands as it is doing exponentially for some cancers. The prognosis is increasingly difficult and the options are increasing. So it's almost in some situations, there's always something else that can be tried. And I think having the conversation is very difficult. We've done some research studies with oncologists about exactly about that, about the conversation about stopping treatment. And they tell us that they find it difficult. They feel as though they're failing patients. They're letting them down. They don't know how to initiate the conversation. They don't know how to start it sometimes. I think, interestingly, the longer a doctor has known their patient, the more likely they are to overestimate survival. So a large research study that was conducted some years ago demonstrated that if you'd known your doctor for many years, they would be likely to overestimate your survival considerably. There's something about that human relationship that's influencing judgments.
0: Do you think it's fair to say that it makes you be more difficult for the average medic than it may be for the patient and their family? Or is, do you think it's more difficult for the patient and the doctor sort of follows and doesn't bring it up because they don't dare upset the patient and the family? I sometimes feel like it's also in the medical profession that we're so not used to talking about death or so I'm an MD myself. We've been trained to save lives and having to say, I can no longer say yours may just be something that doctors find really difficult.
1: I think. They do, and our our research is, is demonstrating that. And it's not seen, having those conversations isn't seen as a medical procedure that requires training and skill in the same way that some other medical sort of interactions or procedures are. So it isn't given the same weight. It's a highly complex and challenging interaction that requires training and support around it for the doctor as well. So there's real challenges on the side of the the medical profession, but on the side of the the patient and the family, there's equally complex challenges. For example, the role of hope. Hope is an incredibly effective coping strategy for many patients. So even when the reality is that the, the treatment isn't going to cure you, patients aren't always receptive to that because it challenges their main coping strategy, which is to hope that one day they will be cured. So this is where palliative care can be really helpful and effective in in helping to adjust to the the new reality that is a a shorter life than perhaps they'd anticipated and to support the family as well to make that adjustment. So the whole referral to palliative care, particularly with patients with cancer, is interwoven with these decisions about stopping treatment. and perhaps losing hope and adjusting to the understanding that
0: life is going to be shorter. So I think the word hope is so incredibly interesting here and it's so important I think because it almost feels like doctors should never take away hope as if it's a bad thing to say to a a person that your hope that you're going to be cured actually it's not right it's not the fact because I think hope can be a a useful coping skill but it can also be in the way of accepting uh, life as it is and death as it's approaching and allowing for those intimate conversations to happen because I've actually seen it in my own environment. I had a good friend a few years ago who died uh, at the age of 60 of, of metastatic lung cancer and it was really difficult for her children to give up hope but because it was really clear that there was no cure, I think they were able as a family to enter into that accepting and having those really intimate conversations that were so incredibly valuable and beautiful, and I'm sure are helping her children right now to cope. And instead of, yeah, yeah, if you just focus on hope, I think there are lots of opportunities you miss of doing things that in the long run can be really important also for the survivors. How do you feel, that?
1: I completely agree. And without an accurate understanding and acceptance of a prognosis, and it doesn't have to be an, an, an accurate prognosis in terms of months or weeks, it's just an appreciation that life is going to be shorter than you would hoped. People aren't able to engage in the planning about their end of life, but as, exactly as you say, that they can't shape how those last weeks and, and months are going to be spent. And it, I think it's really important that people get the opportunity to do that. And and we know that people's priorities in the last weeks and months are very individual, you know, how they want to spend that time. And having the opportunity to exercise choice is really you know, key to palliative care and that individualized care that supports the family, the individual family and person to achieve those goals in the last few months of life. So for example, if somebody wanted to go to their daughter's wedding or something, all those sort of things, treatment is, you know, organized to accommodate that, or we've had weddings at the hospice and people's pets come to the hospice, or I quite often tell a tell a story about a patient who was one of our participants in a study about opioids who explained that although his pain was pretty bad and he took opioid pain relief for some time, he actually stopped taking it because he preferred to be able to see his grandchildren and the medication meant he couldn't drive. So sometimes, unless we understand people really well and not just understand their symptoms, we need to understand what's important to them. And in that scenario, it was far more important to him to be able to visit his family than have his pain fully controlled. So you can't have these conversations or understand people's wishes, unless they have
0: an accurate understanding of where they are in their disease, really. And then would you say that's probably the biggest difference between palliative care and the average clinical care, that is more of a sense of listening and knowing what the person who's dying wants and being able to accommodate their wishes instead of getting into protocols that are aimed at treatment, at keeping up hope, at almost medical profession being in cahoots and thinking, we're just going to pretend that there is still the possibility, even though they know there isn't, but because they're afraid of saying it out loud.
1: Yeah, I think palliative care does, it creates that space to, to step away from treating a disease to supporting a person. And it is a specialism in terms of the specialist symptom management. And there's a lot of expertise within palliative care. But I do think very strongly that actually palliative care is everybody's business in healthcare and medicine. And I think things will move very much in that direction where our medical students and doctors throughout their careers are much more aware of the role of palliative care and moving from not just treating disease, but to treating people holistically and, and knowing when to, to stop the aggressive treatments that aren't proving
0: beneficial. It's really great you're saying that, and it's a very elegant bridge to my next question, which is, would you agree that there's a lot that we are learning in palliative care that is applicable to all of healthcare and maybe to all of life? Because it's fascinating. You mentioned too, that sometimes it's very difficult to know when people are going to die and the prognosis is often really vague and. You always have to draw the conclusion that we are all on the path to death. Only for some people it's coming earlier than they had hoped at some previous point in their lives. But where really is the difference between being on palliative care and living and without knowing when you're going to die and how many of the lessons have we learned from giving people good palliative care and providing them with an opportunity to have a really beautiful end of life, can we actually apply to other people's lives who, whose death may not be so imminent, but otherwise aren't all that different from people of palliative care?
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And as the population ages and people are living so much longer with multiple morbidities, there's people living for many years In a sort of health state, which previously, perhaps 20, 30 years ago, would have been considered a palliative state of health in terms of would have died more quickly, would have had less medical interventions. So I think this concept of palliative care becoming more part of medicine more generally, one of the things that I think will have to happen is that generalist settings, so GPs, even care homes and social carers are going to have to deliver palliative care, whether that is specialist palliative care or whether that is embedding the principles, as you suggest, of palliative care into those settings. That's the only way that we're going to reach the sort of population that have got the potential to benefit because otherwise the provision as it stands of specialist palliative care in the UK is in pockets of expertise within hospices and and within hospitals. And it's not accessible to the majority of people who are dying in the community. And I think through the pandemic, the number of people that die at home rather than in hospital increased by 40 percent and that trend as we've come out of the pandemic and, and people could have gone into hospital has continued so there's been a real shift that is likely to be sustained where people are now dying at home so how we provide palliative care to those is is our next big challenge I think.
0: Yeah it's a, it's a beautiful challenge though I would say And and I'm wondering because the University of Leeds, of course, has a very vibrant medical school and we're training medical students, but also allied health professionals, so we're training psychologists and nurses and midwives. So we have a quite holistic approach also to the the curriculum. How, How do you think we should embed your research findings and everything you're learning from good quality palliative care? Into the curriculum, both the medical curriculum and the others I just mentioned, because I think there's a lot of room for improvement still.
1: I think there is a huge amount, and I think it needs to start very early on because it's almost a shift in understanding what medicine is about, perhaps. So, as you explained, it's typically been very much about curing disease, treating people, active treatment, doing something. (laughs) You know, medics don't do nothing, and actually. Palliative care isn't doing nothing, but it isn't trying to fix something. I think for palliative care to find a place in a a medical model of education, it needs to be there right at the beginning. So that it starts to challenge those preconceptions that it's all about fixing things. And actually a paramedic approached me a few weeks ago to ask if I would be a a, a supervisor on a, a project in palliative care. And she has got so disillusioned by taking patients that are dying into hospital that she wants to do a PhD to explore how paramedics can have a role in keeping patients at home and supporting them and their families to stay at home when they are approaching the end of life, rather than taking people who subsequently might die in A&E, surrounded by unfamiliar people in an acute hospital. So it's not just researchers that are looking in thinking this is what's needed. The people on the ground and and paramedics, if anybody was going to be characterized as a profession that have to do something, they're up there, perhaps at the top. They're beginning to think differently as well. And I think it's
0: a really exciting time for palliative care. Welcome to this first edition of the World Changes podcast from the University of Leeds. I am Professor Simone Buitenijk, and I am in conversation with Dr. Lucy Ziegler to hear about her research into palliative care. My own background is in in public health and especially maternity care. So when I was still an active researcher, I researched childbirth and pregnancy and also how women feel uh, when they're giving birth and when they're pregnant and what care they need and what care they don't need. And I was constantly bumping up against that medical paradigm that we need to do something. It's very difficult for the average doctor to keep their hands behind their back and not intervene. Sometimes it's actually really important to have a cesarean section or an instrumental delivery or do something to save the baby. But I think in general medics and obstetricians, they're far too keen to intervene, thinking that the more you intervene, the better almost to say it really simplistically, and there's very little awareness of what that means for women and how they feel about their birth experience. And there's actually quite compelling research that shows that. Very interventionist, which are often the most traumatic types of childbirths and make women prone to postpartum depression, which of course has huge influence on the babies. But in palliative care, of course, you can't use the excuse that you're doing it to save someone's life. But the behaviors are so similar. Do you agree that there seem to be parallels? The
1: parallels are very clear and the issue around doing, you're not actually doing nothing. I mean, it must feel like you're doing nothing, <laughs> but you're not doing anything detrimental. I think with the treatment, so that if you think about the cancer treatment, actually that comes at a huge cost. So when it's not proving to be beneficial in terms of either controlling disease or managing symptoms, you're making the patient feel less well because they've got the side effects of the treatment to manage. So in that sense, doing something is detrimental. And I think that's the point that you're making here as well, that actually we intervene and make things worse. And it might not be apparent immediately that you've made things worse, but once they're out of the hospital and there's longer term consequences, I think that's the same. that it's hard to quantify the impact of these things for research. It's hard to quantify that somebody was on treatment for too long and they could have squeezed in another holiday because that's not an outcome that's on the radar of a medical that one of the outcomes from the birth isn't how well three months down the road the mother and child have bonded and whether she's suffered from postnatal depression. So it's about thinking of some outcomes that aren't just related to very medicalized interventions.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely exactly what I think it is all about. And that was my research looking at how women felt and, and also studying the right outcomes because we never ask ourselves those questions. We won't know. We also won't be able to tell, in your case, dying patients, in my case, expected mothers, And uh, what the kind of choices are they have. So I think what you're doing is very clearly also related to this whole line of research around shared decision-making between healthcare providers and, and patients, people, and I think you're right. We need to have different kinds of conversations and that kind of research needs to be seen as just as important as research around the prevention of deaths with certain interventions or how long patients will live after chemo A or B. So isn't it also about asking the right research questions and and listening more and doing longer term research, thinking more about the psychology, not just the physiology. Yeah. So what is your research contributing to getting the person's voice in there, the people's voice? Because I think doctors are inclined to say, this is what patients want. And then patients will say, well, this is what the doctor told me. And I think that's also the case in beginning of life, because that's what all the obstetricians always said. This is what the woman wants. She wants me to do a cesarean. She wants me to do this intervention. But I think often the women aren't really told exactly what the options are. And I'm sure that's the same with dying patients who may not always know they have options.
1: No, and I think. What we're trying to do to address the challenge of the conversation, which is only one of the challenges, but the consultation between the oncologist and the patient where we've identified opportunities to refer patients to palliative care that isn't happening. So we explored the barriers to those uh, conversations and part of the barrier was that patients had misperceptions about what palliative care was. So most or many thought it was just about the last few days of life. So they thought you could only be eligible for palliative care if you were really on the last sort of stage of your life and and you would perhaps go to a hospice and die there. And they didn't understand that hospices and palliative care teams can be involved for many, many months. They can come and visit you at home. There's activities you can do during the day, you can access complementary therapies and so part of our intervention was about trying to address that misperception and, and prime patients for the consultation. So give them the opportunity to write down some things that they wanted to discuss at the consultation so they're empowered because. I think over the years, many of these patients have been on cancer treatment sometimes for 10 years or more on and off, and the consultation takes on a bit of a sort of routine pattern where you discuss scan results and you discuss side effects, and then you're on to the next treatment regime. So it was about recalibrating the consultation and saying, I'm coming along with my agenda this time. And then we did some training with oncologists about how to structure the conversation. So both parties were primed about what the, the consultation was about. And then even the oncologists who has had very long careers, have been working for sort of 30, 40 years in their specialist areas, found that beneficial and useful and felt it helped them start the conversation. It helped weave in what the patient wanted and it resulted in more palliative care referrals. So actually when you empower the patient to take the lead, it can really change the dynamic of the consultation and bring in different options other than continuing with treatment.
0: I'm sure it also makes doctors happier and it probably also teaches them some really valuable life lessons.
1: Yeah, I think it does. Part of what St. Gemma's University Hospice does, a large part of their education portfolio is around communication skills, advanced communication skills. And I think it is a huge part of the medical curriculum that perhaps needs to be revisited in some ways, because I think the way doctors and patients communicate has changed immensely over the last couple of decades. And patients are much more informed, much better informed. they often much readier to take an active role in decision-making. So the sort of giving bad news format of a communication training is much more interactive, I think, or patients want it to be a much more interactive process. In the past, historically, the doctor gave the information, you absorbed it, and it was about how that information was relayed. And there wasn't, I don't think the same emphasis on trying to draw out the patient's preferences and and involve them in the shared decision-making, which is, I think, a much more typical of communication with patients today.
0: Yeah. Well, would you say that's the core of what the, the university and St Gemma's are doing together? And I think it's brilliant. We have the first university teaching hospice. I think it's such a wonderful concept. And is this core you think, or are there other areas that you feel the collaboration uh, gives us? We
1: work with St. Gemma's uh, very closely on education and research, and there's almost too many exciting projects to talk about, really. But I think one of them that captures what we're about really is the project to try and address the issue of people who are homeless not getting access to palliative care. So this is a, a really fantastic, innovative project which has resulted in people who are working in homeless hostels being supported and skilled up by community palliative care nurses to support homeless people to die in the hostel rather than in hospices or in hospital. So I think there'd only been one or two occasions when a person that was homeless had been in the hospice and it didn't fit with what they wanted at all. It didn't enable them to see the community really that they're part of. People couldn't travel to see them and it wasn't the right model at all. So this project has really turned that on its head and the hospice has gone to the hostel and supported and, you know, the staff in the hostels were very concerned, as you can imagine, about the prospect of allowing somebody to die supported there, but rather than, as they would have done in the past, sort of taken them to hospital or called an ambulance, but that model is working now and continuing to sort of evaluate it and
0: take it further. That's a really brilliant example. How absolutely wonderful. And do you know of the people who are unable to die in the hostel? Who are the the caregivers around them apart from the hostel staff? Is it other people living in the hostel? Is it their families or a combination thereof? Do do you have any data on that? Sadly we learn
1: that a lot of people that are homeless are, are estranged from their families but one of the people that died in this way was actually supported by the community nursing team to make contact with their family before they died. So that was a real positive aspect of it that otherwise wouldn't have happened. So although their family weren't directly caring for them and they died in the hospice, they re-established that contact and that was something that was important to them to try and do. So it's addressing inequalities in a way that a few years ago, I don't think, we could have imagined we would have found a way to achieve.
0: Well, an absolutely wonderful, inspiring example, and also what a gift to the family members who were able to be there, even though they previously been estranged. That's really brilliant. Thank you so much. I'm wondering towards the end of, of our interview, Lucy, as one of our world changers, would you be able to share with me what your hopes are for the way palliative care will develop in the future? I think what
1: would really be fantastic is if palliative care became available to everybody who's got the potential to derive benefit from it. So that might be a bit of an unrealistic ambition. One mechanism to try and start achieving that is as we've already discussed to start for palliative care not to just be provided by these pockets of expertise across the uk in hospices of specialist palliative care but by disseminating that expertise into the generalist setting and as i've said before making it everybody's business so everybody feels equipped and confident to support their patients at the end of life, to make choices, to make plans. And of course, specialist palliative care is there for especially symptom management and those things. But there's an ethos to palliative care that can easily be adopted as we've seen into settings which haven't necessarily even got a medical training, such as a, a you know hostel staff. And it's perhaps that ethos that is most important about recognising what's happening, supporting people to plan, supporting people to make choices. And yeah, I think that would be incredibly beneficial and start to help us see how we can help us address how to meet the needs of the growing population who are going to need palliative care.
0: Yeah, I think it's not unrealistic to think that we all need that kind of care towards the end of our lives and to strive for being able to provide that to everybody. I think it's actually a really beautiful way (laughs) to end this interview and uh, the university will help you with your research here. One of our rising stars, I think this topic is so incredibly important for for all of us. And I think uh, we should hang on to that idea that this is something that should actually be available to everybody who wants it and needs it. So let's stick with that vision and work together to to make it happen. So thank you, Lucy, for this incredibly inspiring interview and for sharing your ideas and, and especially for being such a wonderful researcher and part of our community. It's, it's really great to have you with our University of Leeds community. So thank you so much for today.
1: Well, thank you very much indeed. It's an absolute pleasure and it's a, a delight to be able to
0: talk about it. Thanks, Lucy. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the University of Leeds. To find out more about the work of our early career researchers, and to read essays written by World Changer researchers. Please go to the World Changers page on the university website. Details can be found in the information that accompanies this podcast.